as Hamish said, we are in um, week two of this inspired series. Uh, and in the evenings, we are going to dive in a little bit deeper into the sections of the Bible. I feel slightly nervous because I think Jeff did such a brilliant job uh, this morning, taking us from Genesis to Revelation uh, in one go. Um, and now I'm going to go uh, through Exodus and the Promised Land uh, this evening. So if we look back to, look back to last week, uh, Jeff talked about the beginning. He talked about Genesis, about creation and the creation of man and woman. He talked about how the earth was good. God said that everything he created was good. But he talked about man and woman and said they are very good. But then we talked about the fall and we talked about sin coming into the world. We talked about Adam and Eve and how they uh, messed things up for us, shall we say, uh, just a little bit. Jeff also talked about science and theology and the fact that some people think that they are mutually exclusive, that they cannot exist together because they fight each other. Well, I, I think like him would argue that that's not the case. I do think that science is subservient to theology. Science is, is perfectly good. I love science, but I love theology. Science can't answer the why, as Jeff said this morning, but theology can. And science is very good at telling us the how and what, how things happen, how they come about. I'm actually reading a book at the moment, and I would recommend it to you. It's The Seven Days That Divide the World. And it's uh, John Lennox, who's a, an Oxford professor. He loves science, but he loves God even more. And he talks about the seven days of creation and how that might look different to you. And I would just commend it to you and keep um, an open mind. But there are many scientists that, that also embrace <clears throat> and love theology, and they love God. So back to Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve so that they would love him, and he would love them, that they would be in relationship with each other. But when sin came into the world, when Eve was deceived by the serpent, and Adam stood by and watched as it unfolded, sin came into the world. And it separated us from God. It didn't separate us from his love. The Bible says that we can't be separated from God's love. You imagine the love of God being poured out from the throne room of heaven. It comes down constantly. But when we sin, it's like popping up an umbrella. And we kind of move out of that, that flow of God's mercy and grace, although it is still coming. But we're not separated from God's love. But we are separated from God through the sin. That became a problem. It was a problem. How were we going to do anything about that? Well, we couldn't. We were never going to be able to do that. But God thought, you know what? I've made these people. I love them. I want to be in relationship with them. What do I do? And so started the rescue plan. So started the redemption of humanity all the way back there in Genesis. So that was Genesis. That was the beginning. We came across characters like Abraham, uh, who had a son, Isaac, uh, who had a son, Jacob, who became Israel. He had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the favorite one of uh, Israel's or Jacob's sons was Joseph. Joseph, with his Technicolor dream coat, uh, ended up being thrown into a system by his brothers. A lot of family love uh, going on there. A lot of jealousy. They threw him into a system where he was left. They were going to leave him to die. And then Judah, which is quite interesting, Judah, where Jesus came from that line, from Judah, decided to sell his brother when he saw a caravan coming on the way to Egypt and said, no, let's sell him into slavery. And then they will cover it up. No one will know. So Joseph ends up in Egypt. And this is where we really get into Exodus and the promised land. So as we come to the end of Genesis, we see then that Joseph ends up being sold into slavery and ends up going down into Egypt. This is where we see uh, Exodus coming in to play. But it takes 
400 years for anything to change. Joseph goes into Egypt um, and he uh, becomes very high up and he's able to welcome his family, welcome the, uh, the Israelites down into or up into the land of Egypt. And they settle there and they have um, much production. They produce much fruit. They produce one another. They expand as a, as a nation numerically and they prosper too. The main themes in Exodus really are liberation, freedom, and God's will for all people. We see slavery, captives, exploitation, and God's desire for people to be free, and we go back to Genesis, to be in relationship with him. That's why, that's the why, theology, why God made us, why we exist, to be in relationship with God. Now the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they continue the story of how God formed the nation of Israel to play a special role in his plans for this redemptive story. And we'll get those, those books out now. So, as we'll come on to later, these books all kind of intertwine. But we're still sticking in Exodus for now. The boundaries between these four books, as you see there, those four books are quite blurred. Um, but they tell us how the, the nation of Israel was formed. The boundaries are quite blurred. They do point to each other. They point forwards and they point backwards. Those four books, they kind of talk about some of the same things. But they detail the multiple stops in the wilderness that they had once they'd come out of Egypt. Uh, The encounters they had with God and the miracles that they had on their journey. Leviticus talks about the law. Numbers talks about organization. Talks about the numbers of troops. Who was going to be Levites. It talks about lots of organization forming the nation of Israel. I've got a slide here with some, some scriptures on, and um, this just really points to how these books are linked together. We're going to come on to Exodus proper in a moment, but right through Exodus, right through to Numbers. If you see there, uh, in Genesis 25:19, it says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac, and it talks about that family line. In Numbers 3, 1, it says, this is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses at the time that the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. Those phrases were used 12 times over in that period, talking about the completeness of the organization and the establishment of Israel and the family lines of those tribes. And then we go into Numbers again. It says, this is talking about Abraham here. May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. Sorry, that's later on. Then when we point back to Genesis, uh, God uses the same words. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So right through this book, it points forwards and backwards at this formation of Israel. This is a special nation, and they will play a big part in the redemption of mankind. So, Exodus. Talked about Joseph going down into Egypt. He does very well. He gets very high up. He then invites his family down. As I said, uh, Israel prospers greatly. Egypt itself becomes quite scared. Initially, they were quite happy to have the Israelites with them, but they start to become a little bit scared a fair or two pass on, and they start to get a little bit worried about Israel and the fact that they're growing and getting stronger, and as a nation, they're getting bigger, and they're prospering. And they get a little bit worried about it, to the point where they decide enough is enough, and they put them into slavery. They put them into labor camps. They set them to building the different projects that the Egyptians are building, the pyramids, the palaces, and and other projects, and they set them to work. And it is a really tough time for the Israelites. And then we read, Israel cries out to God. And he remembers them. 
That seems a strange thing to say, but God hasn't forgotten them. God was there the whole time. He has not forgotten them. But as we see in the pattern of humanity, and it starts with the Israelites, they get into this pattern of everything's great, don't really need God, everything's wonderful. Anybody recognize that? I do. <laughs> I need God, everything's great, oh, I fall into this pattern of I don't need him anymore. This is what's happening to Israel. But they cry out to him. They remember, things are not great, things are not good, we need God. They cry out to God. They've always been on the forefront of God's mind, oh, you've cried out to me, and God acts. And he acts with a man called Moses. So enter Moses in Exodus. He's responsible, we believe, for the first five books called the Torah, also known as the law. But it might be better to use the words um, guidance and instructions rather than law. This is how we might flourish within the covenant of God. But here we now see Moses the liberator. He's just a baby at this moment in time, but this is Moses the liberator. So we've heard the story of the baskets, where Moses' baskets come from. His mum puts him into a basket and floats him down the Nile. And every, every child should, every, um, we'll get this right, every son that's born to an Israelite, it was decreed by Pharaoh that they should be killed. And this is why Moses' mum put him into a basket and floated him down the river in the hope that he would survive. It just so happens by God's providence, he floats down the river and is found by Pharaoh's daughter who takes him in and brings him up as her own. And just like Joseph rose in the powers of Egypt, so did Moses, and he rose to be a prince of Egypt. But it didn't end well, as it quite often doesn't. Moses saw uh, a Hebrew, saw a Jew being beaten by an Egyptian, and he intervened, and he killed the Egyptian. And then later on, when he saw two people arguing, he challenged them on it and said, why are you fighting one another? And they challenged him on the fact that he killed somebody. And he realized the game was up. And he fled. He fled. And he fled into the wilderness. And he ended up at a place called Mount Horeb. At Mount Horeb, he saw a burning bush. This is obviously quite a precede story. He saw a burning bush. And he went over to the burning bush. I don't know about you. I would probably have stood back. But he was drawn to this because it wasn't burning. There was a flame. There was a fire in the bush. But the bush was not consumed. But we read in Exodus 3, 4, and 5, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, he saw that Moses had gone to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. God said to him, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. We'll come on to that later on. But then in Exodus 3, 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. When Moses asked who he is, what is his name? I am who I am. And that is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now the words I am in Hebrew translate as Yahweh. You've heard that Yahweh, that name for God. That is displaced with or translated as I am. Now when you see some translations of the Old Testament, you'll see that Yahweh is replaced with Lord in capitals. So holy was the name of Yahweh, I am, for the, for the Jews, for the Israelites, that they wouldn't say it, they wouldn't even write it down. So they wrote Lord. And whenever you see Lord under, underneath that, underlaying that, the meaning of that is Yahweh, the name of God. I am. The reason I say that is you can, you can sometimes understand why when Jesus' disciples, fast forward now to Jesus' time, the disciples would 
call him Lord. They would say, Jesus is Lord. So you can understand why the Pharisees and the Sadducees would get particularly upset, why they were so angry with Jesus, this man that did so much good, he healed so many people, he, he came up with so much wisdom. Why would they be so angry with him? People were calling him Lord, but for them, to call someone Lord was saying he is God. But with hindsight, we know that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. But at that time, they found that very difficult to, to hear, very difficult to understand. But Yahweh, I am. So, God calls to Moses to return to Egypt to lead his people into freedom. They're still stuck in Egypt. 400 years this has been going on, and they've cried out to God. God says, I hear you, and I'm going to send someone to liberate you. Moses, the liberator. So he says to Moses, in this exchange, I want you to go and set the people of Israel free. Now, I did have an analogy, but Jeff used a brilliant one this morning. It's a bit like asking a Jew in the Second World War to walk straight into Berlin, straight into the Nazi regime, and say, you need to let all the Jews go. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't fancy that journey. I wouldn't fancy taking that on. Funny thing, Moses didn't either. He didn't want to do it. He came up with every excuse he could. You know, God, I'm not a great speaker. I'm a bit of a mumbler. I'm just a shepherd. I don't really want to go back there. To the point where God got a little bit exasperated with him. So, do you know who I am? Do you know who it is that is sending you? And he gave him this staff that would turn into a snake on the ground. When he picked it up, it turned back into a staff. And he provided him with Aaron, who he said would speak for him if he was in trouble. And what the point I want to make to you at this moment is God can use anyone. If you're sat here this evening and you're wondering what your life is about, if you're wondering why you come to church, if you're wondering what your faith journey is about, and you might find yourself just coasting, thinking, I don't really know what God wants from me, God can use you. God can use you, and he will use you if you ask him. Isaiah said, here I am, send me. God can use you, and he will use you. It doesn't matter your past is, because God knows your future. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on as well. So how did they get free? How did the Israelites get free? We have the 10 plagues, and they're really interesting, and we're just going to touch on a couple of them for the sake of time. But God has already said to Moses, do you know who I am? And he sent Moses down to tell Pharaoh who God is. So Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, <laughs> it's not happening. So God sends the plagues. God is God. The Egyptians worshipped idols. They worshipped things. They worshipped the Nile. The Nile was a god, the god of the Nile. So what did God do? He turned it into blood. They also worshipped the sun. Just like the Nile provided water for all their crops, they worshipped the sun because it provided the energy, the heat, it baked their bricks. The sun was a god. So what did God do? He turned it into darkness. Who is the real God here? God is saying. That's what he's saying through these ten plagues. You need to know that I am God and you will let my people go. So we come to the tenth plague where Moses says to Pharaoh, the most uncomfortable of all the plagues as we read them, unless you let my people go, God will kill the firstborn child in every family in Egypt. And Moses' heart is changed. It's hardened because we're talking here about firstborn sons in a society where Patriarchy, patriarchy ruled, and, and everything came through the firstborn son, the lineage, the legacy, everything came through the firstborn son. And it meant a lot to them, and Pharaoh was like, enough is enough. His heart was hardened, but he still wouldn't let the people go. And so the angel of death came. 
Israel were finally free. But they're chased by the Egyptians to the Red Sea. Pharaoh finally lets them go in his grief at the loss of his son. He lets the Egyptians go and they charge off. They take everything they possibly can, everything that they can gather, everything that they've been blessed with, and they run to the Red Sea. But they get to the Red Sea and they face another problem. They've run out of, of slavery, but they get to the Red Sea. How do we get across here? As we know, God parted the Red Sea. The Israelites pass through the Red Sea. They get to the other side and they see the Egyptians who have changed their mind charging down on them in their military might. And they wonder what on earth is going to happen next. But God closes the sea on the Egyptians and he smites them all. And there we see the first song of praise in the Bible. It's the song of Moses and Miriam. And I'm going to, just going to read it to you. It's in Exodus 15, uh, 1 to 2. And it's on, if you've got a pew Bible, if you've picked one up and you're more than welcome to pick one up and use it, it is on page 72. Um, if you've got your own Bible with you, it's Exodus 15, 1 to 2. This is the song that they sang. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. This first song, this praise song. Why do we sing songs of praise? Why do we sing worship songs to God? Because when we do, the atmosphere changes. When we're in an atmosphere or circumstances that we don't like, that we're struggling with, when we exalt God through song, everything changes. It's why the African-American slaves would take scriptural, scriptural songs. They would take scripture and they would set it to songs, to deep songs of spirituality. They were crying out to be set free. They were slaves and they were crying out to God in their faith to set them free. And we're just going to listen to probably the most famous one now, just for a minute or so. Go down, Moses, two weeks but that song go down Moses let my people go the very words of God in song but we sing songs because they liberate us we sing songs of praise to God because they liberate us from our circumstances so we see Moses going down into Egypt he went down into Egypt to release the people of Israel from slavery and that points forward to Jesus who went down into hell so that we could be free from sin, that we could be free from death. Exodus points so much forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Moses, the liberator, and Jesus, our liberator. They were left with a Passover meal. 
the Israelites. They've escaped Egypt. And as time went on, God wanted them to remember what he had done. So they had a festival which involved much food. Sometimes I really wish that I was Jewish. The amount of festivals they have and the amount of food that is involved, it really is remarkable. But they had this Passover meal, celebrating the Passover from freedom in Egypt. And they took, and this is important for a moment, they took blood from a lamb. When, when the angel of death came, this plague that we've talked about, they were told, you must take blood from a spotless lamb. You must kill the lamb and take the blood on hyssop, on some hyssop branches, and dip it in, and you must put it over the lintels. This is a door now. Over the sides and the lintels of your door. Put the blood over the doorway. So the way angel of death comes, he knows to pass over your house. And to remember this freedom, to remember what God had done for them, they then celebrated it with a meal. And it just so happens, with my love of food, that I have got parts of the meal really just to keep you a little bit more interested as I talk to you about this meal and what it means. And it's not just a meal. It really does point to a lot of things. I am coming back. Okay, so here's something I prepared earlier. There's more. So the main constituents of this Passover meal will start to make sense. So they had flatbread. I know you can't see that too well, but I'll hold it up. They had flatbread called matzo. And that was because they were in such a rush to leave. They were told, break bread for the journey. You're going on a journey. You need to bake bread. Don't let it rise. Don't put yeast in. And it's flat. And it's just kind of easy, easy to pack and to take and to, and to eat. So there's matzo to remember the rust that they had. They had salt water, which I promise you this is salt water. Salt water they would take to remind them of the tears that they shed and the sorrow that they went through. There was bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness that they had while they were in Egypt. They also had, almost my favorite part, four glasses of wine for this meal. And it punctuated different parts of the meal and it's tied into the different scriptures that they read. You know it's not real. And the centerpiece, my favorite piece, if this offends you, I'm sorry, but lamb. The centerpiece was a lamb. And the reason I've done this, it's important. It's really important. It's the lamb. The centerpiece is a lamb which represented the sacrifice that was made for their freedom by taking the blood and putting it over the door. We're going to fast forward again. We've got this Passover meal that started in the Old Testament, right at the beginning, back in... Exodus. But this points all the way forward to Jesus again. This was the last meal that Jesus had, was a Passover meal with his disciples. And Jesus reinterpreted the Passover meal into what we know as communion. So as Jesus was with his disciples, he took the wine and he took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood shed for you. Everything in this Bible points to Jesus. Nothing happens as a coincidence. Everything is pointing to Jesus. So the Passover meal talks about being set free. It talks about uh, sacrifice being made so that they can be free. And it points to Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice that will set us all free for all time, once and for all. So they've made it out of Egypt. 
they've, had, they've got their part of a meal. I just want to show you, if it'll come up on here, um, a map, hopefully, of Israel. Hopefully, I've put it in the PowerPoint. It'll come, here we go. That's it. So hopefully, you can see that. So they've come out of Egypt, right the, the top left of the map there. They've come down. They've cut across the Red Sea. They've come all the way down the um, Sinai Peninsula, as it's called, down to Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai. God had brought Moses back and the people back to where it had started for Moses, which is quite significant. And then, as we'll come on to a little bit later, you can see their journey then from Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai all the way up the top there until you see that wilderness of Zin just a bit higher into what will be the promised land. So on their journey through the desert, the, the Israelites were following a cloud, a pillar of cloud during the day. They were following a pillar of fire by night. They were given water from a rock. They had quail, birds that just landed where they were camping. They had manna from heaven, which manna means kind of what is it? Nobody ever seen it before. This was a miracle provision from God. They arrived, like I said, at Mount Sinai, at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And this kind of ends part one of Exodus. They're free. They've made it out. So part two, we've seen Moses, the liberator, and now we see Moses, the mediator. That's what Jeff called Jesus this morning, Jesus, our mediator between us and God. Moses, again, is pointing to Jesus. We need a mediator. We need somebody to help us get back to a relationship with God, and Jesus would be our mediator and do it forever. But as Moses was the mediator, he was given three gifts. God gave them three gifts as they went into the wilderness. That was the law, the tabernacle, and sacrifices. Now, just like Isaac, who Abraham was the sacrifice, pointed to Jesus. The Passover pointed to the last meal Jesus would have, and communion for us pointed to Jesus. And Moses, the mediator, points to Jesus. These three gifts all point to Jesus. You get where I'm going with this, don't you? Exodus and the promise all points to the coming of Jesus Christ. So the law, this first gift. I want to think about the order for a moment that the law came in. If I go back here to back into Egypt, what happened first? Was it liberation and then the law? Or was it law and then liberation? It was liberation. Jesus set them free first. And then he gave them the law. And it's the same with us. Jesus sets us free first. Before he makes any demands on us at all, he sets us free. And then he shows us how we can live. Then he shows us how we can be the best version of us. How we can become more like him. But God is a God that doesn't say, you must do this and I will love you. He says, I will love you. And in light of that, you might want to do this. I will show you a better life. Everything depends on God. The law was a tool. The law was given to people to flourish within the covenant of God. But as time went on, people made law an idol. If you obeyed the law, all was good. And they forgot God even in the law. In Exodus 14, verse 13, it says, as, as the people have stood, if you remember, they stood on the far side of the Red Sea. They've just seen it part for them, but they're seeing the Egyptians charging down the channel towards them. And they're thinking, what are we going to do, Moses? What are we going to do? And this is what Moses says. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. It was all about God. They could do nothing for themselves. We can do nothing for ourselves. It's all about God. We need to be careful that the Lord doesn't become about what we can do. 
but of what we're trying to do for God, what we do in obedience because of our love for God. Law was not about salvation, but how to be blessed within God's covenant with the people. We could never adhere to the law. They couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. God knew we could never do it, which is why he had to send Jesus. He gave the Ten Commandments. As I'm talking, hopefully there's a slide go up just to remind you of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever tried to do that? Ever tried to remember them in, in order and think, oh yeah, I know them, and then think, oh, I'm not so sure. So they're up there just while I'm talking for a moment. Why did they need the law? Why did they need the law? God wanted to protect them. They were going into the wilderness. He was going to go with them, but he wanted to protect them. And I want you to think about the law, the Ten Commandments, what God says a bit like this. Someone described it to me once as like a kitchen. If you've got small children in a kitchen, there are things that can hurt them, and you tend to put them in a drawer. You sharp knives, you carve in knives, things that can hurt them. You put them in a drawer, and you tend to lock it. You tend to keep it away when they're small. And that's what God's doing with the law here. He says, look, there are things that can hurt you. I know they can hurt you, so stay out of that drawer. Don't do it. Don't go there. There's a whole other kitchen that you can go into. If you want to get the pots and pans out and use them as drums, you carry on. But don't go in this drawer. And what I love is later on, God gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, this might sound a bit crazy, but you know those white catches that you put on the cupboard doors? Those ones that are still there. I know your kids are growing up and they really annoy you because they're still on when you try and get into a cupboard. Those. That's like the Holy Spirit. God gives us the law. And we can obey the law. We cannot go in. But sometimes we start to creep in and we want to see... What's in that drawer? What's in that cupboard? And that's when the Holy Spirit says, are you sure you want to go in there? Are you really sure you want to go in there? And that's your choice. You either listen to what he's saying or you override the Holy Spirit and you go on in. But the law was for us to flourish. The law was for a good life. The Christian life is not what you can't do. It's what you can do with God. So Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they they give us the laws. They gave... Uh, the Jews, the Israelites, the law. There are lots of laws, but there are three main types. There was civil, ceremonial, and there was moral, predominantly around the Ten Commandments. So what was the second gift that God gave the Israelites? He gave them the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the place of residence. This was God saying, I am with you. I am with you. This was a nomadic people. They traveled by tent, by mules, by camels. They moved through the desert. But God said, I'm going to be with you. So he literally said to Moses, build me a tent. Build me a tent that I may go with you wherever you go. So that's exactly what they did. They gave specific instructions and they built a tent that God might go with them. And it reminded me, um, actually, of this tent of when we were at Limitless uh, with all the young people. And we were set up in a camp and there was a big tent in the middle. And then all the tents were on the outside, the boys down one side and the girls down the other. And every morning they would wake up And they would look out of their tent and they would see this tent. And out of this tent would come smells of bacon and sausage and eggs. And they woke up and they were like, praise the Lord. Brian is awake and his team are making breakfast. And it was like that with the Israelites in the desert. They would wake up, they'd pop their heads at their tent and they would see God's tent. God is with us. God is with us. But they couldn't just walk in. You see at Limitless, you couldn't come into the tent with a breakfast unless you wash your hands. You couldn't come in unless you wash your hands. You had to be clean. And guess what? It was like that for the tabernacle. You couldn't just waltz in there. You had to be clean, which is why God gave these rules, these laws. God, we've sung it tonight, is a holy God. He is a holy God, and he is to be respected. We are not holy. He has made us holy, but in our nature, we mess up. We screw up. So we've got to be clean before we come to him. We know that Jesus has done that for us. But the Israelites had to be clean 
if they wanted to come into the presence of God. Think of Moses at the burning bush. God said to him, take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. If you want to come into God's presence, we can't be dirty. We need to be clean. And again, we'll come on to that in a moment. But the tabernacle spoke of provision, protection, and presence. So in the tabernacle was 12 loaves of bread. Talking of God's provision, I will provide for you. There was the menorah, this semicircular candlestick that you, you see around. That was the light shining on the people. God saying, I am looking over you. I am watching over you. I will protect you. And there was also the Ark of the Covenant, this wooden box overlaid with gold that had the Ten Commandments inside. And that said, God was saying, I am with you. I am with you wherever you go. See, God is with us. He is with us today through, our, through his Holy Spirit. And we know that his presence changes everything. That's why God said, I will go with them. Build me a tent, I want to go with you. In his presence is the fullness of joy. In his presence is the fullness of peace. It was that reminder to the people they needed God, that we are nothing without him. God's presence changes everything. So the third gift he gave them was sacrifices and festivals, my favorite bit. Sacrifices and festivals. And they were to say, these sacrifices were to say thank you to God for your provision, to say sorry to God for the sins, the things that I've got wrong, I need to say sorry. And for cleansing, to say, I've sinned, I'm dirty, and I need to come into the presence of God. God, I want to be in communion with you. And so they would have to be clean. Leviticus details a lot of these laws. And it can be a tough book to get through when you read it. It seems very repetitive. But I commend something to you. The Bible Project do a video. It's probably about 12 minutes long on Leviticus. And it just explains the law so well. It just opens it up completely. So if you're going to read Leviticus, watch that video first. It is, it's brilliant. But the best, or for me, the best, the favorite, the pinnacle festival was the Day of Atonement was the day of atonement involved two goats. You see, all year round, the Israelites can come and they say, oh, I've messed up again, God. I'm sinful again. I'm, I'm dirty again. And they would just keep doing it and doing it. And it just wasn't quite enough. And so once a year, the chief priest would, would gather two goats. They'd bring two spotless goats. And he would go to one and he would slaughter the goat. And he would take the blood and he would start to throw it over the people. I bet you're glad I'm not doing that tonight. And he just threw the, threw the blood over the people. Now, if you think... All this time ago, believe it or not, there were no laundries, no laundromats. Very difficult to wash clothes. And clothes were limited. You couldn't go to Primark and buy another T-shirt. So this blood that was on your clothes was on your clothes. All year round, the people had this reminder that God had forgiven their sins because of the blood that was on them. Do you remember that we are washed by the blood of the Lamb? Our sins are washed away by the blood of the Lamb. It all points to Jesus. So the second goat called the scapegoat. That's where that term comes from. Someone's a scapegoat. They take the blame. The high priest would get his hands and it would symbolize taking the, the sins of all the people, of everybody, the whole assembly, and he would put them on the head of the goat and then they would shoo the goat off into the wilderness. And he would say, off go the sins of the people. They're gone. Everything in this book points to Jesus. In Hebrews 9, 14, it says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. My blood poured out for you, Jesus said, makes us 
clean. And the scapegoat, transferring our sins onto the scapegoat. Jesus was our scapegoat. And Isaiah 53, which will come up now, I'll just read the, the first at the beginning and the end. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And then in verse 6 it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. When Jesus first appeared to John the Baptist as adults, Jesus approached and John looked up and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus takes our sin. Jesus took our sin onto the cross and he paid for it. We are wiped clean. We are free. Like the Israelites were free from slavery, so we are freed from sin. So that's Exodus. They then want to enter the promised land. So I'm just going to pop Joshua. Just here. I bet you thought this was going in the desert, didn't you? For 40 years. But it's not. We'll come on to that maybe next week. Joshua, the promised land. They've escaped from Egypt. They've been freed from Egypt. They've wandered the wilderness. Now, I don't know, Matt, if you can do me a favor. I don't know if you can bring that map back up or not. I should have put a second slide in, but if you can, that's great. If not, just remember, they've come out. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. They've come out across the Red Sea, all the way down the bottom to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, down that peninsula. That's where they are. Now, where you see Mount Horeb at the bottom, you look right to the top. If you can just see that, like again, that wilderness of Gezin, just north of there is the promised land. And that's a journey that should have taken 11 days. In fact, it did only take 11 days. They approached the promised land. But when they got there, they wanted to see what was in the promised land. So they sent 12 people into the promised land. They spent, sent 12 spies. And the reports came back. Two of them said, we can do it. God is with us. We can do this. Yes, there's some challenges, but we can do it. God is with us. Another 10 came back and said, you're having a laugh. They make us look like grasshoppers. They're huge. We've got no chance. We can't do this. And fear spreads through the Israelites. And they don't want to go into the promised land. So the God that wiped out the Israelite army, parted the Red Sea, fed them in the wilderness for 40 years, brought food out from heaven, brought water out of a rock. They've forgotten again. Do you remember that cycle of, we've got God, who's God? We don't need him. And they find themselves in trouble. And this is where they are. So they don't go in. They don't go in. On arrival on Canaan, on the threshold of the promised land, on what God has for them, and they don't go in. I ask you a question tonight. Who do you surround yourself with? Are the people you surround yourself with faithful and hopeful? Or are they fearful and critical? Who are the people you listen to? Who are the people you surround yourself with? Because fear spreads like yeast. Jesus talked about the yeast of the Pharisees going through the dough. Fear, as it did for the Israelites, spreads very quickly. So who do you surround yourself with? So the result then of this fear of forgetting God and what God can do and relying on themselves and thinking, well, we can't do it, they didn't go in. They didn't go in to Canaan. They spent 40 years in the wilderness and more importantly, missing out on what God had for them. God had a promised land ready for them to go into and they missed it because their eyes were on them and what they could do, not on what God could do. Fear says, in my own strength, I can't do it. And so we give up. 
But faith says, me and God, or me with God, I could do anything he needs me to do. His word says, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not anything you feel like, but anything God calls you to, you can do. Because he will strengthen you and he will give you what you need. Remember Moses and Aaron and his staff. God will give you what you need for what he calls you to do. So I wonder what giants you're facing today. What are you facing this evening? What are the giants in your life? What are the things that are saying to you, you can't do it? I can't do it. I can't do this ministry anymore. I can't start this ministry. I can't do this job anymore. I don't really want to come to church anymore. I'm finding this person a struggle. I never seem to have enough money. What are the giants in your life that you're looking at with your human eyes? I want to ask you to look at them again through God's eyes. The God who can do anything if we ask him. So the Israelites, a whole generation later, finally make it into the promised land, led by Moses' Joshua, uh, successor, Joshua. Now, I think this might be the last time I say this tonight, but it points to Jesus. It points to Jesus. Joshua, in the Hebrew, also means what? Jesus. It means Jesus. It's no coincidence that the one person that took them into the promised land, the fullness of life, that took them into everything that God has for them, his name was Jesus. Joshua, Jesus. Who is the one that has taken us out of a life of sin and death and taken us into a life that is full? Taken us into a life where he wants us to do so much more. It points to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, leading us from slavery into freedom, from the wilderness and into the promised land. So I just want to recap what I've said this evening very briefly. We talked about Isaac. Jeff talked about Isaac last week as that sacrifice. Isaac points to Jesus. Isaac was the firstborn son to Abraham that was going to be sacrificed. But God said, I'll give you. I will give you a sacrifice. And he replaced Isaac with a sacrifice. Moses, God can use anyone. God can use anyone. Don't sit here tonight thinking, it's over for me. I'm too old. I'm too tired. I can't do it. I've got no skills. God will give you what you need. He can use you, and he will if you make yourself available. If you remember the people in the Old Testament, the liars, the cheats, the adulterers, the corruptors, those involved in incest, that was the family line of Jesus. But he used them all. Nothing disqualifies you from being used by God if you come to him and tell him you want to be used. Moses went down into Egypt. He went down into Egypt and he set the people free. God set them free through Moses. Jesus went down into hell for you and me so that we might be free from sin and death and freed to eternal life. The law was given to point our need to a saviour. The law wasn't given to trip us up. The law wasn't given to us as a test, as something we've got to achieve. The law was given to us to say, you know what? You can't do it. You need Jesus. That's what the law is about. And the sacrifices, the point to need, it points to the need to be cleansed and forgiven. Well, Jesus has done that for us once and for all. He went to that cross. He did it once. No longer are there daily sacrifices. No longer does a priest have to yearly mediate between us and God. Jesus has done it all. He has done it all. You can come to God anytime with your fears, your anxieties, your sins, and you can 
speak to him. And the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the promise to be with us. When Jesus went up into heaven, he said, stay where you are, stay in Jerusalem because I am sending my spirit. I'm sending my counselor to you. And surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. God promises to be with us. So that's me done. But what I want to say is, I've said a lot this last two weeks. You're probably sick of me saying it, some of you. The Bible is not for our information. There's a lot of information there tonight. But it's not for our information, it's for our transformation, said D.L. Moody. It's no good listening to facts. It's no good listening to stories if we don't do what it leads us to. John 8.36 said, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The Israelites were set free so they could go into the promised land and they nearly missed it. We have been set free so that we can live a life of fullness with God. We've been set free so that we can live a life leading others to Christ and telling them the gospel, telling the story of the Bible, telling them how it all points to Jesus, how Jesus is the answer to everything. So I just want to ask you, as I ask the band to come up now, please, I want to ask you, are you free? Are you free? The Freedom Encounters team are doing a, a Freedom Day on the 25th of November, which you can sign up to if you want to. If there's something in your life that is troubling you, something in life you can't seem to get free on, something that is bothering you, you could sign up to that. But I want to ask you this evening, do you feel free? Are you free from guilt, shame, fear, anxiety? Are you free from your sinful nature? Because Jesus has set you free. And I want to know if you're going to live in that freedom. Are you prepared to live in that freedom? Do you want to leave Israel, sorry, do you want to leave Egypt behind and live in the promised land? Because that's what Jesus has bought for us. So why don't you stand for a moment. Just maybe put your hand on your heart. And there may be nothing sinister, but nothing you need to worry about, but maybe there's something in your life you want to be shut of. There's something in your life from your past, before you met God, something that's troubling you. The Bible says that we are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. We don't want to be slaves in Egypt anymore. We want to be living in the promised land. We don't want to be slaves to sin anymore. We want to be living as slaves to righteousness. God asks nothing from us other than our lives. If we give him our fleshly life, he will give us eternal life. So what parts of your life are you ready to lay down? What do you want to be free of tonight? I just want you to think about that for a moment and then I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for the richness of it. I thank you for the depth of it. I thank you for the stories. I thank you that everything, every page points to your son, Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. I thank you that he has set us free. You started it when you set the Israelites free from Egypt and it was finished when your son died to set us free. We no longer need to be in slavery. We no longer need to be slaves to anything. So I ask Lord that you would set us free tonight. If there are people here in bondage, if there are people here that have things that are weighing them down, it feels like a chain around their feet. Lord, I ask that you would set them free. 
Lord, I ask for your Holy Spirit to move on people's hearts. Show them, Lord. Just take a moment. Just say it in your mind. Just, just say it to God. I want to be free from. I don't want to feel this anymore. Lord, would you minister to people? Would you minister to them where they are? Lord, would you set us free? So Lord, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. We thank you for freedom. That it started with Exodus, the Exodus freedom. And finished with the freedom that you bought on the cross. And Lord, we look forward to your return. But we thank you that your spirit is with us. We thank you that you promised to be with us and that you are. So Lord, I pray, Lord, this evening that we would know that we are free. That you are with us and that you are watching over us. We thank you for our freedom. In Jesus' name. Amen.